Welcome to Crime and Time on the Rocks. And at home. <laughs> Part two. So we're Zooming in again. We're at home, um, at our own homes, and recording this. Quarters. <laughs> yes. Um, so we did kind of an easier drink today to ensure that we had all the ingredients because we're not going out as frequently or, um, you know, as able to as. just pop into a BevMo because they make you order ahead of time now. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. I haven't so, had to do that. Yeah. They, you have to put your order in, um, ahead of time and then get your order from them. Like how far ahead of time? Are they just 24 hours up or is it? Uh, it's pretty fast. I put mine in a few weeks ago and it was like that day they said it was ready, but I didn't go till the next day. Yeah, that's good. That's good. The little winery that I work at is doing that too. And so the other night I had to go out and give people their order and tomorrow I have to go out and give people, they pack up and give people their orders and then I take it out to their car. Yeah. I mean, we're all making do. Got to have our we wines, are. our wines and our liquors. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of that, we are drinking a classic. A it's classic drink. the screwdriver. The screwdriver. So I have a little info about the screwdriver, but first I'll just give the recipe. So vodka, orange juice, ratios are um, customizable to your taste. <laughs> That's true. So just, I have mine in this glass with crushed ice and a straw. Very nice. I was going to do crushed ice and I forgot Here the it is. crushed ice thing. I put mine today in just... One of my little blown glass glasses from Mexico with the blue rim. It looks pretty breakfasty, which is when my family would have traditionally drank. My exposure to the screwdriver has been grandparents, and um, they would drink it when they were camping in the morning. Yeah, so it's not. To me, it's definitely not an evening time drink. No, it's a morning drink. So um, I did find this though. This is from um, the International Bartender Association. Uh huh. So. They said that the history of the screwdriver is debatable, um, but there's... Me- I might mention- have some info on that. Do you? I might. <laughs> okay. Is it... I'll just be quick then. No, but go the, ahead. The first mention of it goes back to 1949, and it was first made popular by American aviators. Another story says it was made popular by oil workers who called it the screwdriver because that's what they mixed it with. Yep. So but I've got another story too. Okay, cool. That's all I got. Very fun. So despite having, you know, it around constantly when I was growing up, as far as like when we were camping or a special occasion, it wasn't something that they would drink like on a weekend morning every week. You've weekend. never had one. Let me tell Is that what you're saying? I've had like two sips of one my entire life. Okay, because I'm drinking mine already because I've already had them. So <laughs> let's get your honest reaction. Okay. So I'm not a pulp fan. So I bought orange juice that did not have any pulp because I cannot stand pulp. Mine has strain. no pulp. I will take a, a um, strainer to a restaurant to strain my mimosas. I bought no I pulp for. because I bought this orange juice to drink mimosas and I am not cleaning pulp out of a flute glass. Right? That's bad. Okay, so here goes my um, first screwdriver since I was probably 14. I can drink this. I can totally do this. I really like um, 
the orange juice I bought this time. It's one of the like nicer brands. Mm -hmm. So it definitely is a more fresh tasting, fresh squeezed orange juice taste. So yeah. I'm liking it. I did not put in one of the recipes that I found. It said half and half. And I did not put in half and half. I probably put a traditional shot of vodka in. And I do have one of my very pretty glass and gold rimmed canisters filled with cheap vodka because I was cleaning the kitchen and found a bottle of cheap vodka and I had an empty canister so I poured it in there but I used the Tito's for this because I didn't want to drink cheap vodka. I'm drinking um decent cheap vodka it's Seagram's and it's actually pretty good because it's like filtered five times. Right well Husband swears up and down that there's no cheap vodka because he says that all of these um, cheap vodkas have had blind taste tests next to very high end like Grey Goose and whatnot and the cheap vodkas typically win. But the problem is you can tell the you can tell the difference the next day. To me, at least me, can tell the difference the next day if I've been drinking a nice vodka versus a cheap vodka. I don't like vodka. Um, it's not something I ever drink except for, for this kind of reason. So I never drink enough of it to have that problem. Yeah. I'm a vodka fan. I like to make vodka sodas with essential oil. So I'll use like a lime flavored vodka and put a little drop of essential oil in it and then top it off with club soda. But the yeah. vodka that's in my canister right now is like pop -Log or something like that. Yeah. This is C mine Seagram's, which is actually pretty good. So yeah. Anyway, cool. I'll tell so you my story. I'm going to uh, tell you about, huh? We both were talking at the same time. Oh, um, I'm going to tell you about the murder of Danya da Costa. Okay. So, what Danya, happened Danya? Yeah, poor Danya. Danya Hope da Costa was a 21-year-old choir singer. She was attending Broward County Community College in Florida, obviously. Um, she was planning on becoming a pediatric nurse. Oh. Um, just all around, like just a, you know, really fantastic young person. So unfortunately on the afternoon of December 4th, 1998, she worked at her job. She worked at American express. She was a customer service representative. Um, she left there around 10 PM and mm -hmm. she had planned to attend church. So that's late for leaving work. Yeah. She would American express is being open that late. Yeah, well, it was a it was a Friday night, um, and she usually went to church on Friday nights and stayed there till like one in the morning. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so her oh, and her sister, yeah, I think it was like um, an evangelical church. They said the name of it, but I didn't write it down. Interesting to have services at that time of day. Yeah. Anyway, um, she normally went to church with her sister. But for whatever reason, her sister didn't go. Um, she had homework to do or something like that, I think is what they said. Mm -hmm. So Danya just decided to go alone. Yeah. And unfortunately, that was the last night she was ever seen alive. Ugh. So I can't imagine what that sister must feel. I know. And so the family, they're really close family. Um, Danya doesn't return at the time when she should. So they start driving around looking for her. They yeah. just immediately took off and started driving around. They found her car. Um, it was about two miles from their home, and it was just, like, on the shoulder of a major interstate highway. Mm -hmm. And they found out the car was out of gas. And so she's previously 
had an issue where she's run out of gas before. So she carried a gas can in her trunk. Oh, wow. So um, they checked the trunk. The gas can was missing. So they thought, okay, well, she ran out of gas. She went to a gas station. Yeah. Um, they found the, by this time the police were involved and the police found out that she had used her credit card to purchase gas at a nearby Texaco station. And upon, um, police investigation, there were witnesses there that said that they saw Danya and that she came there alone, but she did not leave alone. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's, I don't understand the logic of a young girl letting her getting in a situation where she's running out of gas habitually enough to have a gas can in your trunk right was i mean to me that says there may have been something wrong with the vehicle that's what i was wondering like if maybe the vehicle didn't have the gas gauge wasn't working it was this was in um in 1998 and i want to say her car was like a 1986 something or other so that could have happened. Yeah. It's still just an interesting thing. I've run out of gas, I think, once. In my I life. ran out of gas once in my entire life, and I was, like, within walking distance of my home. Yeah. Well, I was not driving. I was with a friend, and we were out for the evening, like, bar hopping, etc. and we ran out of gas, and I was very livid because you've seen the shoes that I wear when I go out. Did not want to hike to a gas station. Yeah. Enough to where, where did we go recently where I knew there was going to be tons of hills? When we um, went to Nevada City. Nevada but, City. Um, and I said, wear flat shoes. I did reluctantly form over fashion. And it but was, I would have looked way cuter in heels. It was worth it, though. <laughs> it was. Well, especially after the concert where I walked out of the bathroom and stepped in a hole and spent the remainder of the concert in the emergency tent behind the venue having my ankle work done not only that i didn't even get to take advantage of you being back there by getting a tour of the tour bus i even tried to drop names to the local police department because i knew people that worked there and it you did not were work. totally dropping names and it didn't work it did not work so <laughs> it was a bust sorry that when i i damaged my ankle severely i couldn't get you backstage <laughs> well we did kind of again we did get backstage that was cool <laughs> Um, so anyway, interrupted your story. Yeah, that's fine. So witnesses said that they saw a gentleman in a van who pulled up and offered to take Danya back to her car and to help her out. And they, there was two separate witnesses. They both described the driver as a black ma black male in his thirties or early forties. He was really well-dressed and very polite. So dad looking type. Yeah. Like a younger dad. Yeah. But, um, don't get in a van. No van. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I still don't know that she, I think she did it willingly, but I don't know. But anyway, so the only thing the witnesses disagreed on was the color of the van. One of them said it was teal blue and the other one said it was burgundy, mm -hmm. which are two really different colors. Yes. Um, and they were both very confident in their answer. So the police were both like, they were like, they're both adamant that it was this color, but it can't be both. So right. somebody's wrong. So well, but sometimes those lights, 
in, at night, the lights underneath gas stations can change colors. They can make things look a different color than they are. Right, and so that's why the police tried to pull the surveillance from the gas station. And unfortunately, the van was just right outside the camera range. Of course it was. So there was nothing there for them to see with the cameras. But one of the witnesses said that the word hope was painted on the side of the van. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the police decided this was a detail they would not release to the media. And this particular description of the van was the really the only thing they had to go on at this point. So the detectives began to contact every business in the area that had the word hope in its name. And there was a smart idea. Yeah. They found more than a hundred agencies or businesses. So meanwhile, the family, because they're a close caring family, they started canvassing the area, handing out flyers, knocking on doors, you know, doing everything they could do. Um, Unfortunately, it's been three days now and they have no leads other than this van. So on the third day, there was a worker that was at his um, business. It was in an industrial park 30 miles away from where Danya disappeared and he found a body near a dumpster. Oh. And it was a female. She was wrapped in sheets and a shower curtain and her head, her head was wrapped in a plastic bag. She was nude, and there were brown carpet fibers found on her body. Poor baby. So the medical examiner realized that it matched Donya's description and also realized that the murder happened just hours after she went missing. So at the scene, investigators found a tire impression on the sheet that she was wrapped around. The sheet was dark brown, and so unfortunately, they couldn't get a really clear impression of the tire because it was like dark on dark. Right. So they used, tried to use like all kinds of alternative light sources and everything they could to get a better contrast, and they were able to get a photograph of the tire tread, but it really wasn't enough at that point to identify the make and model. Right. I bet it's going to be a van. Uh, could be a van. (laughs) (laughs) So they, you know, they continued with all their forensic work and they used super glue fuming on the shower curtain and on the plastic bag. Oh, I love the super glue fuming. Oh, I know. I love it too. I always want to try it at work because the detective that I work with, he and I are like, let's do it. And then we always just are like, nah, we'll just send it to the lab. (laughs) I've never tried it either, but I think it would be really fun to try. Maybe I did. I had a administration of justice class years and years ago, probably like 20 years ago, the school that we worked at together before you were there. And we did the pencil shaving fingerprint thing. And I want to say we either tried or wanted to try the the super glue thing, but I don't know that we did. I think the only reason why we haven't done it is because we haven't done it, so we don't want to mess up something that actually matters. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, they found some prints on um, the plastic bag, and they ran them through the automated fingerprint system. There was no match. So mm-hmm. back to square one. Um, medical examiner found that Danya had been sexually assaulted and tortured. 
So they found all these wounds on her. There was more than three dozen star-shaped wounds on her chest. And the odd thing is they were superficial. They weren't even really deep enough to have done anything other than just cause pain. That's disgusting. Mm -hmm. And they found out that the cause of death was a stab wound to her skull. And it was that same instrument, the star-shaped instrument. Mm -hmm. And so it actually went through her skull. You have to be wielding something with a lot of force to go through a bone as thick as your skull. I know. Isn't that gross? Yes, that is disgusting. That's Um, one thing that disturbs me about the zombie shows. They just like barely stab the skull and just goes right in and kills the zombie. And I'm like, bone's harder than that. Yeah. Even dead bone is harder than that. Doesn't check out. No. I mean, not that zombies are, you know, a thing yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so they also found, like, near the fatal wound on her skull, they found this horseshoe-shaped bruise. It was, like, um, a more condensed horseshoe shape. And they didn't know what would have caused that, but that was just something that they needed to look for. And there mm-hmm. was also a bite mark on her arm. And so they were able to photograph the bite mark. And um, they found out that the person who was responsible for the bite mark had spaces in between several of their teeth. So that was another thing they could use to try to match back. Um, it's so cool what they can do with dental impressions and bite marks. It's, oh, I know. It's more identifying the fingerprints almost. I think all of this is cool. Um, yeah. And speaking of not fingerprints, but fingers, they um, took swabs of underneath her fingernails and found some foreign skin cells and and ran those for a dna match oh nice so they're wait you know those results take a while so now it's eight days later and somebody had somebody from the public gave the investigators a tip they said that two blocks from donya's home there was a burgundy van that belonged to a church and the police went there and they surveilled the house they saw four men get into the van and leave Mm -hmm. they stopped the van and inside they found a floral dress that matched similar to the description of what donya had been wearing seeing that floral dress led investigators to have enough um evidence to seize the van for to run for evidence um yeah that using a church van that's gross I know. So, um, of course, they took tire impressions, and unfortunately, none of the tires matched the impression from the sheet that um, was wrapped around Danya. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and they um, showed Danya's mother the dress, and she said that that was not the one that Danya had been wearing. Oh. So really? it's still creepy and gross, but they weren't the people that did this. Oh wow! Huh. Yeah. But still, where did the floral dress come from in a church van? Right. So they um, also got all four of the men that were in the van to agree to um, give DNA samples. All of them did, and none of them were a match. So now the case went cold. So yeah. then, just randomly, the two detectives that were primarily working the case, um, they just happened to spot another van. This is like four months later. This just van was accidentally randomly. Yeah, they were just out doing something else and they see a teal van. Oh wow. Yeah. And the word hope was painted on the side. 
Oh, interesting. So I wonder if they had done that purpose, whoever, whomever owned that van had done that purposely to make it look more innocent. I don't know. I mean, I know, I don't think so. But um, huh. I think they just happened upon it. Yeah. No, I, but I mean, oh. the, the person who owns the van may, tr were trying to make it look like some kind of church affiliated vehicle. Because I would think if I saw Hope on the side of the van, I would think, oh, there's a church van. Yeah. Well, it was a church van. So they found out that the church was affiliated with, um, with a daycare the the daycare was ran by a local church and mm -hmm. so they went and they talked to the pastor and the pastor said that he was pretty sure he knew who was driving the who was driving the van on the night of Danya's murder because he was one of those kind of people he kept a detailed log every single time someone drove the van like when they drove it and when they returned it well good for him and it was probably just out of concern for that resource because churches in a church daycare probably don't have a lot of money yeah so he he um luckily like i mean if he didn't have this oh yeah because so, they could just be like well i wasn't driving it were you driving it? i wasn't driving it yeah like you're not going to remember four months back no and there would be tons of fingerprints in it if it's a daycare van. Man. yeah yeah so they look at the log and they find out that um a person named Lucius Boyd was the one who'd been driving the van. Lucius Boyd was the maintenance man at the daycare. And apparently he had taken the van that day to run errands and he didn't return the van until several days later. Oh, wow. Why was he still running errands for a preschool at 10 something at night? Well, he took it that day and just yeah. never returned the van for several days. And the pastor this might've been something that happened a lot. Cause the pastor just was like, Oh, well, nobody needs it for anything. It's fine. Oh, wow. So I don't know how many, if that was like a one-off or if that was just like per usual, like maybe someone would check it out to do errands and then return it only when somebody else needed it. I don't know. Yeah. That just seems odd for a company vehicle, like any company vehicle that I've ever used, you check it out and you return it within the business day, unless you're going to like a, Training or, yeah i know well i've never really worked for this type of business it's always been like uh public agencies so well yes that's true the only time i've ever checked out vehicles it's been from schools so yeah like the time that i took a bunch of kids to stanford for a leadership conference and we accidentally got lost in west or south san francisco i don't know some scary part Oh, goodness. And then I'm trying to cross the freeway to get off. And I looked behind me. There was no one behind me. And then I went to move. And then suddenly there was a car behind me. And I said a very colorful word in front of all of my little children. <laughs> who are juniors and seniors in high school. But still, I felt really bad. I think they're fine now. <laughs> yeah, they were good. Well, one of them grew up to be a Marine. So I don't think I scarred them that bad. Yeah. Um, so anyway, they um, got the van. And of course they searched it again or yeah, not again, because this is a different van, but um, they looked inside and they found a purple laundry bag. And there was also a similar laundry bag found with Danya's body. So they were like, ding. Yeah. And there was also a toolbox and inside the toolbox, there was several tools missing. The pastor 
was able to identify that there was a reciprocating saw missing as well as a torque screwdriver. Ooh, what are they doing with the reciprocating saw? Yeah. So also Lucius Boyd, he lived only two blocks away from the gas station where Donya was last seen. Hmm. So the detectives go to contact Boyd and when they do, he's like, I wasn't involved in this, um, but I have no alibi and that's it. Yeah. Sorry, that noise you hear is my tiny dog who just got done with his bath. So let me tell you about Lucius Boyd. Yes, I want to hear about Lucius. So he was no stranger to the police. Um, yes, he wasn't. In the past decade, the previous decade, he had been charged seven times for violent offenses. Um, oh they ranged. God. Why from, in the heck is he working for a church preschool? Sorry. Oh, we'll get to that. Um, okay. So his offenses ranged from rape to murder. I nearly choked on my screwdriver. Um, in each of these instances, he had been acquitted previously. He and was all proven guilty and all that, but come on. Yeah, he like was tried and con and con uh, acquitted. Um, he had also been a suspect in ten other unsolved murders. Okay, at some point you have to say, well, when you know one plus one typically equals two, and. Yes, he was tried and convicted and innocent till proven guilty, but if he's tried and convicted for rape and murder and then a suspect in 10 other violent offenses, at some point you have to say, okay, maybe it's you. Like Nancy Grace says, if you want to judge a horse, look at its track record. <laughs> right? <laughs> like the whole where people complain about how they're always dating losers and they don't know how they keep finding these losers. Well... Look at you. <laughs> um, so at this point, once the detectives realized this, they were like, okay, we have to get this case solid. Like we cannot let this one slip through oh. the cracks and he yeah, cannot go free. Obviously slippery. Yeah. He cannot go free. So they talked to the daycare and they're like, well, we knew about his previous criminal history but he was found innocent in all of these because he's never been acquitted in court. So we believe that he was innocent. Oh, well, I mean, that's part of what the, the, the ministry might be. And, and I'm all for those ministries that help people right out of prison and help people who've had bad breaks and everything. But he worked at a daycare. Not, right. Those are kids, A. But he's also not getting his, he's not learning his lesson. He's been investigated 12 times by this point. Two times enough to take it to trial. No, he was taken to trial seven times. Seven times? Yeah. Oh my. I thought he was a suspect in 10 and then went to trial in two. But he went to trial in seven. The police go and talk to Lucius Boyd's girlfriend. And... She's super cooperative. Yeah. And, but she was super cooperative. She said that she was out of town and they were able to verify it when um, the crime occurred. And then they asked her if any of her bed sheets were missing. They're at her apartment at this time uh -huh. that, th that they shared. And she goes and looks and she comes back and says, yeah, there's a yellow sheet missing and a brown sheet missing. Interesting. Which were the same colors that were wrapped around 
yes. Donya's body. Now, I was about to say it's weird that you have brown sheets, but I have purple, red, and black sheets. So I have brown maybe sheets. Brown isn't that weird? Do you? Yeah. Oh. I would never have thought of the only reason I have black is because I bought them for my classroom walls and I bought more than I needed. But um, I would not think of brown. It's like a sheet color. I've had them for quite a while because they're like guest bedroom sheets, but oh. they go with the bed set that I have. Huh. I may have slept on those. Maybe. It's possible. Um, it's possible. So they also noticed that the bedroom in their apartment had brown carpeting. And as you might remember, Danya's body had brown carpet fibers on it. Yes, it did. And uh, so then they start looking around the bedroom and underneath the bed, they found bloodstains. So he moved the bed to do this. I get, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the situation, they could have just rearranged furniture. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I cannot imagine because like when you look at a space, in my brain anyway, I see memories of things that happened in that space. And I think about like just different things, like these are my kids' clothes or whatever. So maybe I had a friend one time who I was picking up, there was like, I don't know, but I don't remember. But anyway, it's just a fact, like, this is the space that you share with your girlfriend, and now in that space, you have a memory of the rape and torture of a young woman in the same but room where you sleep with your girlfriend. He's done it, like, dozens of times before, so. So he's gross. Yeah. Um, oh, so then the lab was able to confirm that the um, fibers that were found on Danya were a match to the carpet in Boyd's bedroom the fingerprint analysis that they did on the plastic bags they tried to match them to lucius they were not a match to him but they were a match to his girlfriend and their son oh they're just the bags yes plastic bags okay so he probably wore gloves when he was doing it but they had handled the bags because it was their house yeah it was probably like back in the day when you could get grocery bags from the grocery store remember that time you can do that again now I guess. I got free bags from Rayleigh's today. Well, now you're going to have fingerprints on them. So when somebody goes to murder somebody in your house, you're going to get blamed. But I was, say, I was thinking at the very time that they were giving me the bags, I thought, okay, well, if one good thing comes out of this whole COVID experience, I hope it's the fact that the bag ban has gone away. Because it has been, what, three years, and I still never remember to take bags to the grocery store. Yeah, my husband too. I I always remember, but I feel weird about doing it now. Yeah, they don't even, well, Rayleigh said this morning they don't want you to. They're like, no, we don't want them. Well, local grocery store in my town doesn't give a crap. <laughs> local, local grocery store in my town is business as usual with the exception of one-way aisles and they have a plexiglass up for the clerks. Everything else is exactly oh, wow. like it always is. Wow, Rayleigh's has completely changed. They have, um, all the employees have on masks, they have plexiglass everywhere, and they have um, over the loudspeaker, it's, oh, they have sanitized carts, and you're supposed to leave your carts in another, your used carts in another section, and then there's a man sanitizing them. He also stops you at the door and directs you to take the sanitized carts, not the carts from outside that he hasn't gotten to, and over the loudspeaker mixed in with the music that they play is, um, 
please stand six feet away from the other patrons. Yeah, not in, in my town, that's not <laughs> business. That's not how it's working. That's funny. And Rayleigh's is a reasonably localized, I mean, it's, it's NorCal and what, Nevada? Don't know. Yeah. It's California centric anyway. Yeah. Um, where was I? Sorry. Oh, so grocery store talk is over. I know. Let's <laughs> go back to murder. Yay! So yeah, the um the fingerprints on the bag match Lucius's girlfriend and her and their son. And their son? Like is in he's the dad? He's the dad, yeah. Um then they took a they took the tire impression from the sheet and were able to was able to match that to one of the tires on the daycare van. And but they still needed to prove how Donya died and they still needed to find a match for the murder weapon. They had to get this case tight because of all the times he's been acquitted. Because he's slippery. Yes. So the pastor who obviously was a very good record keeper. Um, yeah. He was able to give investigators the exact make and model of the reciprocating saw. And oh, so wow. they went, they went and bought like a similar one and they saw that the end of the reciprocating saw had a horseshoe shape that matched perfectly to the bruise on Donya's head. Interesting. That was not where my brain went when you said horseshoe on the skull near the stab wound. I was thinking something else. Yeah, if you could, if you like saw the picture, you could picture it being the reciprocating saw, but huh. it's just like from the end of it. I don't know how to describe it. Um, so what was he doing with the reciprocating saw? He probably bludgeoned her with it is what the only thing is that could have happened. Okay, yeah, because she wasn't cut up. No. And then they found that the star-shaped wounds that were all over her body and then also the fatal wound uh, matched a Torx screwdriver that was missing from the van. So the Torx screwdriver is a screwdriver with a star-shaped head. It's different than like a Phillips head because it's kind of like fluted, I guess, and the end is like completely blunt, not sharp. Yeah. So they were I'm able to- talk about it. Oh, you are? <laughs> I am. Um, that's all I was going to say about it. But anyway, that was found to be the murder weapon. Wow. Um, they, they got a cast of Boyd's teeth. And of course, as you might guess, that matched the marks on Danya's arm. It matched the bite. And I'm finally, it's got some missing. Yeah. And finally, <laughs> DNA testing proved that it was her blood in Boyd's apartment. And the DNA that was found under her fingernails was a match to him. Oh, good. So we have this all wrapped up in a good little bow? Yes. So he was conclusively proved to be the only one that could have been responsible for her death. He was convicted. Yay! He was actually convicted this time in 2002. He was sentenced to death. And um, as I previously alluded to, investigators believe that he killed at least two other women in similar ways. And obviously there was seven other assaults and or killings and 10 other killings that he was suspect of. So he was tried in seven total and a suspect in an additional 10. Correct. 
So there were 17 crimes prior to this one where he actually got caught. So he is a full-fledged ser serial rapist slash killer. Absolutely. And they finally just caught him with this one. Yes, absolutely. So is he gone yet or is he still alive down in Florida? Um, I don't know. I didn't look that up. Yeah. He will be gone soon, hopefully. Yeah, I know he had an appeal, like there was some sort of appeal that happened, um, but I didn't read further to see if he has actually been sent or put to death yet. Yeah. I'm glad that the girlfriend cooperated and wasn't like, well, my man wouldn't do that. Yeah, she might be an idiot, but she didn't sound like a dirtbag. Good. Non-dirtbags are good. I'm in a little more trouble with Screwdriver just because... I could not think of something historical with screwdriver. <laughs> so I went obvi <laughs> and went to the history of the screwdriver. This is something most people don't know though. D correct. And there's actually more information than I thought. Um, not so much surrounding the screwdriver itself, but the screw as a fastener and as a tool um, it was very interesting. And there was actually, I could have gone down some big old rabbit holes that I didn't. Um, there was one though that I tried to make husband laugh about this certain type of screw being used for a butt hinge and how you had to use this certain kind of hammer to, to extra hammer in your butt hinge. And he just was being very mature about it and not taking the bait. He's like, yeah, you need to do that because your butt hinge needs to be very secure to hold the door up. <laughs> he was just taking that. He was taking it seriously. He was. I wanted him to be a 12-year-old boy with me, but he wouldn't do it. So as I have just given away my hook here, I started out my notes with, we're surrounded by this invention, and I absolutely guarantee that you have one in your hand or sitting on one or wearing one at this very moment. And like me, you might actually have them in your body because I have three in my wrist. Yeah, I've got um, them all over now that I'm looking around. <laughs> They're everywhere. They're everywhere. So the screw, I was going to talk about the screw and the screwdriver, but, you know, there's the whole chicken and the egg thing, what came first. I recently heard something where they said with the chicken and the egg debate that the egg had to come first because the chicken had to be evolved from something. So there was an egg that was not quite a chicken, but gave then hatched to be a chicken. I don't even have it. I don't even have it. Well, my, my whole little jump thing that I was trying to write there that didn't, isn't funny meant was we don't know what came first with the chicken and the egg, but we do know what came first with the screw and the screwdriver, and it was the screw. Because the screw has been around since around 400 BC. Before Corona? Before Corona. Not only before Corona, before Christ. It's an old, old thing. Um, the father of mechanics, Architeus of Tarentium, is believed to have invented this screw. He invented it as a shaft um, that was primarily used for presses in the extraction of oil from olives and grape from juices. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yes. And they have uncovered oil presses from Pompeii that had screwdrivers. And I'm quoting this because I couldn't figure out a way to rewrite this 
nicely. So I just flat quoted it. So um, Archimedes, 287 BC to 212 BC, developed the screw principle and used it to construct devices to raise water. The water screw may have been originated in Egypt before the time of Archimedes, but it was constructed from wood and was used for land irrigation and to remove bilge water from ships. The Romans applied the Archimedean screw to mine drainage. The screw has, was described in the first century AD in Mechanica of Heron of Alexandria. Screw's been around for a while. So oh, I'll give you the names of my sources now because I just think they're funny. I used boltscience.com. <laughs> allpointsfasteners.com, JL Coline, um, Thought Co, Construction Magnet, US Microscrew. Oh my God. At Labs Obscura, Instruction Bless, House, House of Tools, Encyclopedia, Business Insider, Vine, pear, food and wine, travel by the glass and make me a cocktail. And we need to deep dive into travel by the glass and make me a cocktail.com. Those are both very cool sites. Okay. Anyway, this together. So um, I'm currently in my job as a teacher in at home now. I'm doing a unit on Renaissance Europe and I'm finding, I'm trying to add a lot of YouTube videos and things to my classroom to try and make it accessible and interesting for the kids at home so they don't have to just literally read the textbook and fill out the google form that i made so i'm, I'm looking up youtube videos and i found a lot um, of different inventions from the renaissance time have screw drives in them they used it to press moisture out of paper when making paper and obviously gutenberg's printing press used it as well to put pressure on the paper to add the pipe so from then to now, screws really didn't see a lot of widespread usage. Um, around the mid-1400s, they started being used a little bit more, but they were still completely made by hand. So you've got a screw that fits in this hole, and it only fits in this hole because this screw was completely and totally handmade. That's crazy to think about. Yes. So like the, I, and I've heard stories of, um, during the revolution, our revolution, if your gun, or it, and, and prior to that, if your gun broke, you had to go have another part machined precisely to the measurements of your gun because there was not the ability to make mass produced products. Like they didn't make 10 triggers, they made this gun, and then they made this gun, and then they made this gun. And that's kind of how the screw was as well. They, they made this screw and it was used for this and then they made this screw and it was used for that versus making 20 screws all the same because they couldn't make them the same. They may have made 20 screws, but they were all a little bit different. Yeah, and they would only fit in that one. Whatever they screwed niche. it to. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, um, but by the 15th century, screws are becoming a li little more commonplace. They're typically used by armorers and gunsmiths at this point um, to fasten metal mechanical parts of early firearms to the wooden stocks like I was just talking about. So they weren't really widespread usage because they couldn't be made on a large scale. You had to literally 
carve this yourself or the, the manufacturer did. So according to Bolt Science, Antone Theote introduced an innovation to a lathe, which is, I know what a lathe is. I don't know if you know what a lathe is. I worked for this family that did woodworking at one time right out of high school. And I used a lot of different woodworking tools like the bandsaw and the drill press and all kinds of different things. And I never really used a lathe, but I knew what a lathe was. And it's sometimes it's a rotating blade and you move the piece of wood around it. And other times it's a stationary blade and a rotating piece of wood. So like when you look at a table with ornate carved table legs, those are typically made on a lathe. Yeah, Google like on YouTube videos where they do lathing, it's really satisfying. It's really cool to watch it like carve out. There's a game on um, your phone that I'm always seeing the ads for when I play when you play the other games that it's like a lathe game where you have to make this specific shape by moving in and out the like, the quote unquote blade. So this guy made a innovation to a lathe that allowed screws to be cut more uniformly and allowed longer screws to be made. Um, and he did that in 1870. However, true to form, there's controversy to that and other sites said different things. So Thoughtco says that the first satisfactory screw cutting was invented in 1770, not 1750, by Jesse Ramsden, who is an English instrument maker, and another Englishman, Henry McCaulsey, improved on that device in 1897, and his innovation allowed mass production of the accurately sized screws. But by 1798, an American machinist named David Wilkinson had invented a machine to mass produce threaded metal screws. Um, these screws were used in steam engines, machine tools, surveying instruments. Um, I feel like we're you had to fix metal to wood. We take the invention of the screw maybe like a little for granted after hearing this. Oh, for sure. There's the whole, the entire industrial revolution would not have happened without the screw. Yeah, it's even like George Washington was a, a surveyor prior to. Well, in between his army service and maybe before, I don't remember, I know he was a surveyor. The equipment that they used to survey land had screws. So your it was- Eyeglasses have screws. Your eyeglasses have screws. Everything has screws. It's a, it's, it's a very common thing that we don't even think about. And, and as I get further into my little thing, I'll talk about the different types of screws that there are somewhat i did not deep dive into that either because that's just way too techy and um boring you know, like husband appreciated the difference between wood screws and drywall screws versus metal screws and copper screws and countersunk and blah 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 blah, blah. But i don't care it's a screw but we will now just pick up we'll just go to the store and grab a handful of screws and not really think about what they're used for the vast majority of people and we're oftentimes we're using them wrong. Oops. Like they're developed and designed and engineered painstakingly for these specific jobs. And when we go to Home Depot, we just grab a box of screws off the shelf and don't think about what it's designed for versus what we need. And I'm not saying everybody does that, but girls probably do. 
I do. I'm guilty of it. Millennials. Millennials. Um, I've even gasp used a nail to hang a picture. I'll use anything that will hang a picture because <laughs> I just like, I mean, scotch tape, if that works, I'm going to hang yep. it with that. Yep. 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 But apparently, no, that's a no, no. So, um, the command strips are amazing. My entire classroom is hung up with command strips. Yeah. Whatever I have that will hang a picture is what I hang a picture with. <laughs> right. And I've had very few, I've had very few failures. So. Yeah. Well, except for the time you remember when we were hanging pictures right before the birthday party um, here and we marked the wall and then hammered the nail a half inch away from the mark. Mm, that might have been alcohol involved. It absolutely was. I think everything we do is alcohol involved, but I have a picture of that. I sent it to husband and he laughed at us, but when does he not laugh at us? Blah, blah, blah. 1798, American machinist named David Wilkinson invented a machine to mass produce threaded metal screws. But like so many other things um, that weren't interchangeable, kind of talked about this, screws at this point, no one had thought to make them standardized and spacing was a big deal. So in the 1860s and 70s, the United States standard thread was created. This was a huge debate. Um, in 1841, there was an Englishman named Joseph Whitwam, Whitworth, pardon me, W-I-T-W-A-T-H, who said that the angle of the thread flanks needs to be 55 degrees. And he had a specific number of threads per inch for various diameters. Well, no, we don't like that. And in 1864, William Sellers said, no, it needs to be 60 degrees. Then Europe got in on the argument with their metric system, and they thought it to be 47.5 degrees. So big, hot debate over how to standardize screws. Yeah. Sounds complicated. Were there scientific rationale or is it just like, I want to be the one that says I did it? I do not know because I didn't find anything that said that, but I imagine it was probably, I want to be the one that says I did it. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the innovation marched on and in 1916, the SAE, which is the Society of Automotive Engineers was formed to augment the US standard and define thread forms and specifications for quote, threaded fasteners for general use. This was a set of standards that was adopted by the ANSI, the American National Standards Institute. But since you, you know, never enough cooks in the kitchen, there was also the IFI, which is the Industrial Fasteners Institute that was formed and they publicized their standards. The debate was finally settled in 1928 when the National Screw Thread Commission developed a standard to abide by for all of custom screws, everything, they, they made this standard for all screws and they also made, there's this screw for this job and this screw for this job and this screw for this job. Hence the metal and the sheetrock and the wood and the copper and the blah, blah, blah. But now, the National Screw Thread Commission was established by Congress in 1918 after much hot debate, but it came about 
in a way that you probably wouldn't even think of. It was tragic. Um, so they came up with this plan. Sorry, I have to put on the work computer too. Um, so they came up with this plan that they, and they it made it all the way to Congress and needed to be a law to come up with this National Screw Thread Commission, which is an actual bureaucracy that the United States has. Because in 1904, there was a horrible fire in Baltimore. All of these other departments showed up to help the Baltimore Fire Department and oh. they were completely useless because none of their hose couplings matched. That's bad. I can see yeah. that having, I mean, yeah, that has to be standard. Yeah, yeah. So that's why they came up, they put forth this bill to make the National Screw Thread Commission. Um, in the early 1900s, there were lots of different screw heads that happened that came about. Um, obviously, first was the slotted screw. That's what started the whole thing. Um, lots of different kinds. And the Robertson screw was a square head, and that was developed in 1908. It was used in the automotive industry. It was used in the Model T. Um, it fell out of fashion because Mr. Henry Ford wanted Mr. Robertson to license his screw, and Mr. Robinson said, no, I don't want to. So Mr. Henry Ford said, oh, Mr. Screw you. We'll switch to his. Yeah, screw you. <laughs> That's funny. So they switched over to Phillips when that was invented in the 1940s. And because Mr. Robinson wouldn't compromise and wouldn't license his idea, his screw was nearly completely eclipsed and replaced by Phillips. The hex socket screw is a six-sided hex design that is, it goes, it's similar to the Allen wrench, but we don't call it the Allen screw because the screw came before the wrench by several decades. So he doesn't get to use Allen's name. Yeah, I don't know what you screwed the screw in prior to the Allen wrench, if you had the screw but no wrench. So, I don't know. Um, the Bristol screw was invented by Dwight Goodwin in 1911, and it originally looks like the Allen Hex design. Um, and then later, the star-shaped torques came in about 1967. Um, it's typically used on cars, bikes, consumer electronics. It was developed because the Phillips screw was developed to, um, some of them will actually kick your screwdriver out when it has gotten to the proper torque. And the techs or torques will not because it's blunt on the end. You can just keep keep torquing, torquing. So you can countersink, which I'm sure you can with some Phillips too. But that was the idea that a lot of people didn't like that the Phillips would sometimes accidentally pop out or on purpose pop out, and they wanted one that did not pop out. So hence the torques. Um, there's a quote from an article by David E. Pretzel or Petzl, P-E-T-Z-A-L, that said, before Torx, which apparent, appeared in 1967, all firearms, because they're often used for guns, um, so all firearms relied on slot head screws, which were designed to make an ordinary shooter measurable and make gunsmiths drive around in Bentleys. Yeah, because they're, <laughs> they're loosening all the time. 
Right. And you'd strip it, trying to fix it yourself. And so you'd end up having to take it to the gun shop from to drill it out, remove the screw um, himself. So now they're all typically torques in a lot of the firearms. And those don't strip quite as easily. Um, so the newest incarnation of the screw head is called the Outlaw Fastener. It's a multi-tier screw that's kind of a combination of an Allen wrench and a wedding cake, a three-layer wedding cake. It was started by a successful Kickstarter in 2013. Um, if you want to do a deep dive on screw heads, you can visit instructables.com and read the When a Phillips is Not a Phillips article because it's very comprehensive. You can learn anything you want to learn about any type of screw head possible. Um, micro screws are everywhere. The iPhone 6XS has 69 screws. The iPhone 6 only had 52. I did not do the research to find out what the newer phones have, but um, they have switched recently to a pentalobe screw, which they switched that in the iPhone 4, which is a very rare type. And a lot of times consumer electronics will use an obscure screw head type so that you don't have a driver so that you can't fuck with it yourself. Speaking of iPhones using obscure things, yeah. so recently my um, I was getting a message on my iPhone that said my SIM card was SIM card failure. So I thought they didn't have SIM cards anymore. No, Verizon has SIM cards. Oh, okay. So I Googled it and they said, get your um, SIM card tool from the box. So I opened up the box to my- I used my, to have a SIM card tool for my old Motorola. Well, I opened up the box to my iPhone 7, no tool. I opened up the box for my stolen iPhone 6, no tool. I opened up the box to my iPhone 5, no tool. stolen no from tool. you, not that you stole. stole. Yes, my 6 was stolen. So yeah, opened up the box to my iPhone 5, no tool. Finally Ooh. opened up the box to my iPhone 3G, Finally had the tool. That you owned, what, 15 years ago? I got it in like 2010. Yeah, because we were still working at the school together when you got it. No. You had an iPhone back then. No, they didn't come out till like 09 or 08. I swore you had one. I had the Motorola Razor. Huh, I thought you had one and you had a problem with the screen and it like went black. No. No, hmm. But anyway, the ironic thing about the iPhone 3G is that it was an AT&T phone that didn't have a SIM card. And a tool in the box. I'm convinced, though, that Verizon takes them out so that you have to go to them to get your phone fixed. Um, that's the entire reason they use that screw in the first place is so that you have to go to them to get it fixed. Yeah, that just brought, like, it brought up a lot of memories because this was, like, two nights ago that I did this. Oh, my goodness. Um... I threw away my boxes. I kept the box to my 11 just because it's pretty and green. Well, clearly I do not because... <laughs> well, good for you because you found your damn tool that you needed. Along with the iPhone 3G that's still in the box. Oh, that's funny. I recently, my iPhone 6, um, I've been using it as an iPod and I bought a Google Home Mini for my classroom and I would play music in my classroom while the kids were working. And since we switched to, you know, at homework, I um, 
put in Google Voice on it so that I could call my kids. And it's just sitting on my printer here in my little desk space. And I picked up a piece of paper and it flipped off. And it's got a screen protector on it. It somehow hit the floor just right. My screen itself completely shattered, like totally spiderwebbed. But my screen protector on top is perfect. That sounds like a fail. It's supposed to happen yeah. the other way around. So screw. You got to have a screwdriver, right? Or they called them turn screws at the time because they were kind of an afterthought. The main idea, the main importance was the actual fastener, the actual screw that would fasten something. So they were called turn screws up until the mid-19th century. Um, a very early, early model of a screwdriver was an armor's combination tool that had a hammer and a wire cutter and a puller, a nail puller on it. Um, do you remember when we were in elementary school and they made us use those compasses to draw circles where you put the pencil on one side and it had the pointy thing on the other side and you put the point in the middle and then you turn it to a specific degree and you spun it around to draw a perfect circle? AKA what the boys were stabbing everyone with tool? Yeah. Yes. That is what this tool looked like. It looked exactly like that. Once more, uniform screws became a thing, and once they started being created, then it was much easier to get a screwdriver, a better screwdriver. Um, Henry Phillips invented the Phillips screwdriver, screw design um, that was created, and he improved the screwdriver to be a thing in its own right. Prior to the Phillips screwdriver, the, if you've got a slot head, so they just basically would take a piece of metal and like hammer it flat so that it fit in the slot on your screw and you would just use that to turn. But now with the Phillips, you need it to be rounded. So then they started using the round shafts um, with the plastic handles and that, or the wooden handles, depending on the year. And that became much stronger and better because that round steel that was just shaped at the end was much stronger than a piece of hammered steel in a flat. Oh yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> it would just snap. Um, so these Phillips head screwdriver, I guarantee everyone, um, I don't guarantee, I would venture to guess that nearly 99.9% .9 of the people listening to this right now somewhere in their house have a Phillips head screwdriver, somewhere. Um, and it, it kind of became a thing in its own right. It is often credited as the greatest invention that no one ever thinks about. That's like what I was saying about the screw in general. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So things pretty much kind of stayed the same. They kind of just went along until 1967 when the Torx driver came into play. And even though the Phillips was way ahead of the slotted um, in pop-out technology, the Torx you know, took out that problem as well, and you could keep your screwdriver into the hole better. Um, the first screwdrivers, quote unquote, were made in the mid-1800s. Like I said, they were just the flat shafts. At this point, there are over 30 different types of screwdrivers available. 30? 30. Gosh. Right? You don't even think about that. The... They're, they're for everything, different sizes, different uses. Most of them are made of steel wire for the bar and plastic for the handle, but they come in all shapes and sizes. You can find super, super cute little screwdrivers for your glasses to massively huge screwdrivers that you almost need two hands to turn. 
Um, but it's it's pretty important. It's a thing. So now the drink that we just drank, the history of the screwdriver cocktail is a tad more murky than the screwdriver itself. Um, businessinsider.com says that in the 1940s, some rough and tumble American oil workers were working in the Persian Gulf and they would add vodka to their morning OJ because you're not supposed to drink in those countries. And they didn't have anything to start with, so they used their screwdriver, hence the name. Um, another idea put out was in 1949, a Time Magazine article was written about a very clandestine meeting in an Indian hotel called the, where was it, the park? I think it was the park. Between American engineers, Turkish intelligence, and Balkan refugees, and they were talking, they were having their clandestine meeting, and they were talking about this awesome American drink that they need to try, which was orange juice and vodka, and it was called the screwdriver, and that's how it became popular. Well, maybe that's how it became popular, but I'm buying the first story as the origin. We'll see if you're still buying that when I'm done. So, um, I have to find where I'm at, blah, blah. But that hotel that they're talking about in India, if it is the one in India, because our hotel is kind of obscure, but if it's the one in India, which is the most likely given the Turkish, the Balkan, the American intelligence in 1947, that particular hotel called the Park in India was not built until 1960. Uh, uh, uh. So, pulling that story. Um, there's also a story that says Marines during World War II, every now and again, because you know they're Marines, they're not gonna be too bad, but every now and again, they would throw some vodka into their OJ and start their day. Um, and they would call it a screwdriver so they wouldn't get caught. But there's another story from um, Travel by the Glass that says during Prohibition, people would mix the nasty old bathtub crap alcohol that they would get with whatever they could think of that would mask the taste. So they wanted something that was strong tasting enough to mask the taste of this disgusting creation that they got out of Johnny's bathtub. Which that's true. Yes. Orange juice became popular and the term screwdriver started being used so that they could talk about it openly and not have fear that their neighbor would turn them in. Which, like Christmas cookies? Like Christmas, okay, that is so hysterical because that literally was the words that were gonna come out of my mouth. I was gonna say like you and I used to back in the day when we would talk about, hey, let's go get some, make some cookies after work. <laughs> <laughs> that's hysterical. Yeah, so that's why they would call it the screwdriver um, to throw the authorities off. Now, the thinking is that this is the most likely answer because Smirnoff Vodka had advertisements that have been verified as far back as 1937, advertising a vodka drink, which is half vodka and half OJ, referred to as the screwdriver. In 1938, it was in Journalism Quarterly, volume number 44, and it was written about also in 1944 in volume 23 of Newsweek, where it says, a quote, a screwdriver, a half orange juice and have vodka drink popularized and intended initiate invented popularized and invented by American aviators cost just a dollar including the customary barman's tip. 
So given that there's references to it all the way back in 1937, it's highly unlikely that steel workers in the 40s or iron oil rig workers in the 40s created it using their screwdriver to stir it, which is sad because that's a super cool story. Yeah, and I don't know, like the whole thing with the prohibition and the name or whatever is not, it's just boring. It's not as good of a it's story. It's boring, yeah. But um, the, the 1937, the 1938, and the 1944 article would be what historians, real historians, not me, might call um, corroborating evidence because they're experts. We're not. Totally not. We're drunks. We're just drunks. As always, you can contact us on Facebook at Crime and Time OTR. On Instagram, we are Crime and Time OTR. On Twitter, we're at Crime and Time OTR. And our email is crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. Email is where you'll, want to, where you will want to send us cocktail suggestions, things Topics. you want to learn about. Yeah. yeah. Or just say hi. Or just say hi. And we also have a new Patreon page Yay. if you want to buy us a drink. Buy us a drink. So that is patreon.com slash crimeandtimeotr. And we're going to be offering some perks for our patrons. Absolutely. I'm excited. See you there. Thank you for listening.